So hello there. This is the third episode in my short podcast series on the ethics of academia. In this episode, I'm going to be chatting to Regina Rini, who is currently a professor at the at York University in Toronto, Canada. She's a Canada Research Chair. She talks a bit about the nature of that position in our interview. Uh, Regina has written a lot about applied ethics and philosophy. She has a background in cognitive science and neuroscience. And I know her best for some of her writings on the ethics of deepfakes. I did an interview with her on that topic before, and also the ethics of microaggressions. She's written an entire book about that. In this conversation, we focus quite a bit actually on Regina's work as a public philosopher. She writes a philosophy column for the Times Literary Supplement, and also some of her thoughts on diversity in the classroom and the importance or lack of importance of viewpoint diversity and viewpoint neutrality. So it's actually, I think, a really interesting conversation. We get into some hot button topics and we also discuss some perhaps outlandish or interesting thought experiments along the way. So I hope you enjoy this. And without further ado, I'm going to hand over to the conversation that I had with Regina. As per usual, if you like the podcast, please rate and review it and share it online. And that will help to spread the word and will be much appreciated. Thank you. So, uh, Regina, I thought maybe we might start with me asking you just about your current academic role. You know, what, what do you do? What do you research? What do you teach? Sure. So I teach at York University in Toronto. I've been there for, this is my fifth year teaching there. I hold a Canada research chair, which is a, a nice job to have. It basically is a primarily research-oriented, although partly teaching, job. Um, and what I focus on is a cluster of issues around ethics, epistemology, which is the study of knowledge and belief, and political philosophy. And a way to put it all together is that I'm interested in how norms, rules about how we treat each other, how we interact, how norms are negotiated in public spaces, in, in political spaces, but also just culturally, just day to day in our ordinary lives, and most especially how those norms are changed by technology. So by social media, by biotechnology, by artificial intelligence. So I'm, I'm especially interested in places where sudden shifts in technology upset or suddenly change the way we expect others to act and how we respond to that. And that that has that's the main part of my research. It also is a big part of my teaching. I teach classes on the philosophy of artificial intelligence, uh, classes about social epistemology, that is how we negotiate belief and evidence in public, especially in places like social media. So it's it's the I'm very fortunate that I'm able to integrate those two things. I teach and research on many of the same topics. Okay, very good. And so let me talk first about research. Since, as you mentioned there, I guess your position is primarily research-focused or weighted towards research and about the topics that you have chosen to research. And this is a general question that I ask everyone, but, you know, what or do you think of as your duty as a researcher? I mean, let me put it this way. Do you think that you have to research certain topics that have a social utility or value, or do you think it's acceptable for you to just pick whatever you happen to be interested in and not worry too much about its social impact or social interest? 
So I think that this is a collective responsibility. It's a kind of division of cognitive labor within academia and within particular disciplines. I think it would be very bad if the entire discipline of philosophy was not responsive to socially useful purposes. That would be very bad. It would be hard to justify expecting public funding. It would frankly be hard to justify just the existence of the institution if we just did whatever we wanted and didn't care about whether it was useful to anyone else. That said, within the discipline, this is the idea of the division of cognitive labor, not everyone needs to be constantly thinking about how their research might be taken up outside of the discipline. We can spread out the pieces of a collective intellectual project. So there are going to be some people in philosophy working on things like formal logic, uh, methods in the sciences, uh, archival research on historical figures, the kinds of things that reasonably you wouldn't necessarily expect most people outside the profession to take notice of. They might, of course, people might be interested in those things, and that's great if they are, but we don't have to require that every single individual researcher's project is immediately applicable to some question in public life. What they do need to do is feed into an overall disciplinary orientation that takes account of the role of philosophy in public life. And I do aim to be in that division of cognitive labor, I aim to be more toward the public facing side of it. So I'm especially interested in making use of the work that I and other philosophers have done behind the scenes, but connecting those up to issues in the public. For me in particular, that takes the role of, of public writing for, um, for, for general audiences. So I write a column for the Times Literary Supplement once or twice every month where I apply concepts from philosophy to issues in the news. And that changes very, very much, I mean, it depends on what the topics are in the news that month. Um, in the last couple of months, I've written about the TV show Squid Game and, um, and other recent things that have been, I'm trying to remember right now, but the semester has been so crazy, I can't actually remember what else I wrote about a few weeks ago. Uh, but anyway, but I, but I write about things that are in the news right now using the tools of philosophy. And it's not reasonable to expect everyone in academia to be doing something like that all the time. Um, but it is reasonable to expect that someone within the profession is doing it. And, and I, I enjoy doing it. So I'm glad to be somebody in that kind of position. Yeah, I mean, that idea of there being this division of cognitive labor, and you got to think about this in terms of the institution or academia as a collective or whatever, that the body of research being done has ultimately some kind of social utility, but individuals within the system may not be directly focused on that. I mean, how do we decide or determine that division of cognitive labor? Because on the one hand, I guess you could just say everybody goes with what they're interested in. But I guess there's a worry there it, that you might be kind of losing out on certain opportunities or insights. You know, maybe it would be a good idea for the formal logicians to turn their hand towards public philosophy on occasion. And maybe it would be a good thing for someone like you with the more kind of public orientation to focus on sort of pure metaphysical research or something on occasion. Have you any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think to function within academia, you have to do at least a bit of the peer research. My, my own background is in the methodology of cognitive science. Before I was a philosopher, I was trained in neuroscience, and I, I got my start in philosophy doing basically the, the philosophical underpinnings of neuroscientific research, especially in social science. And some of that's incredibly technical work, and I've published some stuff that I don't expect anyone outside of my narrow subdiscipline would have much interest in reading. Um, so to, to have credibility within academia, you certainly have to do that kind of thing. Um, 
and 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 also of course it's I, I don't not just for credibility reasons it also just helps you sharpen the way you think is to spend some time just at the real center of a debate in a really technical way that it takes years to learn how to do that's valuable to have that training the the problem is if you do it all the time if that's the only thing you do i think there is a risk that you drift farther and farther away from why we cared about it in the first place just to pursue that example the reason why i do work on these technical questions about methodology and neuroscience is because we want to do good neuroscience why do we want to do good why do we want to do good neuroscience because we want to understand how the brain works why do we care about that because we want to care about what makes a human life rewarding what makes it go well Ultimately, the reason why I'm doing this, these narrow methodological questions about fMRI scanners is to serve a broader goal of making human lives go better. And I, I think it's just at minimum, it's incumbent on all researchers to at some point pull the lens back and see what the broader picture is supposed to be. That's not just in philosophy, that's everywhere. That's across the sciences, across all of academia. And so I, I think everyone needs to have at least some attention to that. Whether everyone can or should attempt to directly engage the public, I think is a slightly different question. It's a certain skill set to write for a general audience or to engage with a general audience. And I, I just don't think everyone wants to do that. And I'm not sure everyone can do it. Um, it, it does take a certain willingness to to suspend exactitude. This might be a polite way to put it. If, if you are extremely anxious about getting everything perfectly right all the time, I don't think you can directly engage with public audiences because the venues for public engagement don't permit that kind of 15,000 words of incredibly narrow definitions that academics tend to write in. There's just not a readership for that. Understandably, I, I don't want on my free time to be reading 15,000 words of exacting definitions. Um, and so you, if you want to write or engage in that venue, you've got to be willing to give up a certain amount of the protection of that precise formal prose and be willing to say, all right, here's an idea that is accessible that I can explain to you. Maybe it's not perfect. Maybe it doesn't have every last little edge sanded off, but I'm going to explain it to you and defend it anyway. And I think reasonably not everybody wants to be in the position of putting out their ideas in a imperfectly polished form. Yeah, that's interesting. So, I mean, that was kind of the the second question I typically ask is about this sort of uh, public facing element of research. Is there some kind of obligation or onus upon us to explain our research to a general audience? And I guess you've touched upon that already in, in what you said. Um, but I, yeah, I, I suppose I wonder if you think about that, reflecting on that idea that you have to avoid the bias towards or desire for exactitude. Do you think there are risks inherent in what you're doing in your kind of public philosophy writing that you simplify issues? And do we have not have a duty to introduce sort of complexity and nuance into public discussions where I think maybe nowadays, all too sadly, there is a lack of that kind of nuance? Sure. So I absolutely think that what philosophy can contribute is complexity and nuance. And I, I like to believe that's what I'm doing, even in short 1200, 1500 word pieces. Um, so I don't want to say that that's what's at opposition. The, the thing that is at opposition with public philosophy is the kind of uh, defensive guarding against every possible objection. Philosophers are notorious for this. Philosophy papers are written in such a way that I, I think it's... Um, um, 
I'm trying to remember now off the top of my head, um, Jim Pryor's writing advice, which is to um, imagine a, a stupid, mean and lazy reader. So philosophy is supposed to be written for a stupid, mean and lazy reader, someone who is going to not um, not be not be charitable to you, who's going to look for every chance to find a gap in what you're doing, who also isn't going to do any cognitive work on their own. So they have to be told everything in in the most um, inert prose possible, etc. And I, I have I have complicated views about whether academic writing should look like that, but public writing definitely should not look like like that. You don't write for for non-academics in that way, and you shouldn't. That, that, that's insulting to the reader. Um, and so I think that there is this danger, especially in philosophy, probably across academia, to think about the, the, the stupid, mean, and lazy reader, and therefore write in this defensive way that is simply about protecting the author from any possible challenge to their authority or their competence. And you just that's not engaging writing. You have to give up that sort of self-protective instinct if you're going to write in a way that's interesting to read. And so it's not nuance you're giving up because you, you can be nuanced and you can be careful about the core idea. What you do have to give up is that instinct to close off every possible means of criticism of your position. Yeah, I mean, th this is a paraphrase, but Michael Lewis, who you know, I guess is the leading or best-selling nonfiction author in the world, I think he had this quote, from an interview once where he said, when he was reviewing academic papers for one of his books, he said, what struck him was that academics write from a defensive posture. They don't write mm -hmm. to entertain or excite their audience at all. And that's why he disliked kind of academic writing. But I guess that's a similar idea yeah. here. No, that's totally right. And it's something when I started writing for public engagement that I, I found really hard at first, because the, the truth of it is that other academics will will take advantage of this and will snipe at you. I, I This was super frustrating at the beginning. The first few times I wrote public pieces, I discovered that there were other academics, that some academics who don't write for public audiences would use social media to to nitpick what I wrote, to, to snipe at me, to suggest I was incompetent because I hadn't discussed every possible interpretation of an idea you know, in a 1200 word piece, 1200 words, that's it. It barely longer than an abstract for some professional things. So that's my entire piece. And I didn't talk about every possible interpretation of some figure I mentioned. And, and like at first I found this incredibly frustrating and, and unfair and really unhelpful for the collective project that philosophy is engaged in of, of having to be responsive to the public. Uh, and I gradually realized that it's just inevitable that academics are trained to take shots at each other. And if you don't write for the public, you probably just aren't aware that the, the shots you're taking at a public facing piece are just unreasonable and unfair. They don't actually, it, it's not possible to, to defend yourself against every possible sniper, academic sniper, um, when writing 1200 words. And anyway, so I, I, I'm unsettled at this point, a few years into the project of writing for the public, I, I sort of expect now to be sniped at by, by um, other academics. I wish they wouldn't. I think it's unhelpful to what we're trying to do, but I also understand it's inevitable. Yeah, and just to be clear, you know, my experience is that when you're writing 12,000 word pieces, they also take snipes at you for not including every possible interpretation sure. or every resource. And, and in a sense, like, I'm going to come back to this in a moment, but like the whole peer review process is centered on finding uh, missing points or objections to what you read. And and when you're actually reviewing a piece, you kind of feel bad if you don't have some, anything to say about it. If you just say, oh, actually, this is wonderful. I, want, I think it should be published. Um, you, it feels like you're not doing your job properly in, in a way. 
it's the same point I think that arises, you know, at professional meetings. You feel like if you don't make a contribution or say something, yes. you're not earning your stripes, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I, I do want to talk a bit more about your opportunity to do this public philosophy because you're fortunate enough or lucky enough to have this sort of prominent uh, column and have this ability to speak to the public. Uh, number one, you know, how did that arise? How did that, uh, does it suddenly just kind of fell on your lap or did you go out and seek it? And I mean, a follow-up question then is like, when you are writing that column, what what do you try to do? Like, And what do you think that you bring to bear upon you know, public debates, public conversations, like conversations around Squid Game or, or whatever other topics you've chosen for your column over the years? What, what What is your contribution or your kind of unique selling point for that column? Yeah, so the column come, came about somewhat surprisingly a couple of years ago. Um, back up a little bit further, I'd written a few op-eds and I um, wrote an essay for the Mark Sanders public philosophy competition a f- couple of years ago. Um, and I, I, my essay won that competition in 2018 and then it needed to be published somewhere. It was unpublished at the time. And so I sort of shook the contact tree and asked people who knew people. And eventually uh, someone put me in contact with an editor at the Times Literary Supplement and they were enthusiastic about the piece and they ran it. Um, in 2019. And so after that, I had a relationship with the TLS. And about a year later, they came to me and asked if, if they said they, were, they would like to start up a column related to ethics and uh, philosophy in public life. And they asked if I was interested in doing it. And I actually don't know the background as to what happened just before that. I don't know how I was chosen or how that went. Um, but I was enthusiastic about it and happy to work with them on developing the procedure. The way it works now basically is I am trying to write every other week and in practice during teaching that often doesn't happen but the goal is twice a month and what that means is my editor and I are in constant email communication about what is a topic right now in the news that is accessible to many English language readers across different countries not just in the UK or in Canada or anywhere else but the TLS has a global readership in English and so what is a topic that's in the news people are aware of that allows me to bring out some concept or some figure from philosophy to help us think about this this problem I'll actually give you an example and I remembered one of my recent topics there was a um a, a, a AI system, it's called Delphi, that uses crowdsourced mass data to produce moral judgments. So you give this thing a query, you ask it, is it okay to do X? And it will tell you in English whether it's right or wrong or something sometimes slightly more nuanced to do that. And it's using machine learning techniques. It's using essentially predictive analysis of human text to do that. And there, there was a flurry a debate about a month ago on the internet about what this thing was and what it was meant to do. And so I wrote a column about that comparing the the crowdsourced technique used in this AI program with John Rawls, the philosopher John Rawls, and his approach to the methodology of moral theory, something I had researched in the past uh, when I was doing work on the cognitive science of morality. And I, I found some interesting connections, which to my knowledge, no one had drawn yet. No, no one had drawn any scholarly literature. This is, uh, as far as I can tell, an original point of scholarly analysis. 
but I published it in a, in a uh, 1500 word public facing piece in the TLS rather than in the journal. Uh, partly that's because it's much faster. I went from conceiving of that idea to publishing it in about a week and a half. You can't do that with a journal, but also just because it, it was a topic that people were interested in at the time, not just academic philosophers. People were interested in how to think about a piece, a, a bit of computer software that seemingly can comment on human morality. And I found Rawls a really interesting reflection point for how to approach that. So that's the kind of strategy is to is to be attentive to things that are in the news that people are paying attention to, and then try to find ways to to broaden public thinking about the topic through tools we get from philosophy. I mean, do you ever worry about kind of stepping beyond your own sort of professional competence or background, like your own research interests? Or do you kind of range freely over a wide set of topics that you may not have any kind of particular research background in? It's, it's, it's dangerous. I, I, um, I worry about this. Sometimes I write about things I know a lot about. That, that example I just gave you, I know a lot about. I did a lot of research on Rawls. Um, I, I, I would claim I have expertise on methodology and Rawlsian philosophy. But that's not true of everything I've written about. Uh, one example of this, about a year, a year and a half ago, and during the summer of 2020, during uh, the protests after the killing of George Floyd, um, there, there was a U.S. Senator, Tom Cotton, who wrote an op-ed in the New York Times basically calling for the military to come out and put down the protests and put down the violence, he said, and so forth. And and it, it was a pretty, it was a lot of controversy, obviously, over this. And I wrote a column about that, analyzing Cotton's view through the lens of Thomas Hobbes, the, the uh, famous political philosopher. And I'm not an expert on Hobbes. I hadn't read Hobbes probably since I was an undergraduate. So I, I pulled out my copy of Leviathan. And here's the problem. The Leviathan is hundreds of pages long. I didn't have the time to reread the entire thing. I've, I've The column is very quickly produced. I generally get about a week to write it. So I, I can't, you know, I can't reread all Leviathan and write an essay on it while doing all the rest of my work. And so what I can do instead is just sample from bits and pieces of the book to remind myself of what I'd read in the past and then put together a view uh, applying this. And that is risky, right? Because I'm not an expert. I very much might have made a mistake and how to interpret Hobbes. Um, so far, no one's pointed one out to me from that column. But for all I know, I made some glaring error. And the frequency I have to write the column twice a month means there's, the odds are pretty good. I've, I've written, I think, 26 of them now, some, somewhere between 20 and 30 I've published in the last couple of years. Um, the, the, the frequency that they come out means that I'm sure there are errors in them. So uh, that's tricky. That's risky. I, I think... Let me put it this way. I feel like I'm doing my due diligence. I don't feel like I'm doing something wrong by doing this. I think that if you're going to do regular public engaging work, this is just built into it and there's no way to avoid that. No person can be an expert on every topic. So I, I feel at peace about that. I do worry, like I said before, about the sort of vulnerability that puts me in as far as public sniping. And at this point, there's a substantial body of work that if somebody wants to start attacking me, it's pretty easy to do that. And um, that's just that's just built into regularly publicly engaging. Yeah, I mean, I have two just other questions on this. One of them is not really anything to do with the because the theme of this podcast is more on like the ethical aspects or dilemmas of, of academic life. But um, I mean, how has this affected or impacted on your professional life and professional reputation? I mean, you already mentioned that you do get some snipes from professional peers, I guess. But is doing uh, doing public philosophy is that something that is 
rewarded in your position or is it something that you really just do in your spare time as kind of hobby in addition to your other duties? It's a good question. I think it is not very well rewarded within academia. Um, and I, I should be, I should separate out my own experience here from a general comment on this. Cause I, I'm, I have tenure now. I have a research chair. I, I don't really want to complain about things. I would say, I don't think my public work got much waiting and say in my tenure case. Um, I, I, but, but again, I, I, the point is not to complain about my personal case because I'm safe at this point. My, my point is about the general status that public work has within philosophy. I and mean, I've seen this in reviewing files for more junior scholars. I, I do think we just ignore the value of public work. It generally doesn't get counted as having anything like the weight of a scholarly publication, which is kind of bizarre when you consider that, you know, uh, an op-ed in a major newspaper is going to have literally thousands of times more readers than uh, a journal, than the average journal article. The impact on human thinking is almost certainly much, much, much greater for a well-written op-ed than for a well-written journal article. I, I don't mean to, I'm not trying to make a claim about the relative merits, all things considered, but, as, but, but when it comes to giving credit for people for the work they they've done academically, completely discounting and ignoring that public impact, it just seems to me out of proportion. It doesn't make sense. Uh, and yet it is the way that many institutions function right now. They just don't care about that kind of public facing work. So I, I think that is is dangerous, especially for junior people. I, I generally don't advise junior scholars to try to do as much public facing work as I've done because it, it is gonna take away from the time you can put into academic publications and that will probably hurt your your credentials on the academic job market. Um, I do advise people to do a little bit of it if you're able to and willing to. If you're willing to take the risk to put your work out there in that way, I think it can help in limited quantities, even for junior scholars, because it is a way to get your name out there. You can get known as the person who does this and not just known within philosophy or even within academia. You, you can get known, you can get contacted by journalists who are working on a, a related topic as an expert. And that's a way of getting, getting, building your reputation. It's incredibly risky. It's much, much riskier than writing a journal article because you, you don't get the time to carefully control it. You don't have absolute control over what ends up getting said in your name when you're talking to journalists. But it is an opportunity to, to build your own profile and also build the ideas you want to defend. It gives you a platform that sometimes goes around the slow and I think overly conservative nature of academic journals uh, to get ideas out there and begin building public discussion. Yeah, and I think actually as well in what you said, there's an important moral criticism, I guess, of academia in the sense that maybe it does overweight professional publications and professional esteem or, uh, you know, impact within a narrow group of, of scholars as opposed to this public facing work. And maybe there is a problem with the way in which we uh, weight those different things. That would kind of lead to a larger discussion. But the other question I wanted to ask you is kind of what do you see as the public value of, of writing this column? So I think you mentioned in one of your previous answers, you're talking about broadening thinking in a way that kind of is consistent with the philosophical approach to the, these matters. I mean, do you know of whether your columns have a positive impact on the community? Or do, I mean, is this something that can be measured or assessed? Or is it just a hope or aspiration? Yeah, how do, I mean, how do you think about the, the impact of what you write? 
I hope they do. I, I, it's hard to know. I, I, um, I don't have access to the metrics like, you know, um, the, the TLS somewhere on its computer servers has measures of how many people are reading which thing. I, I don't have access to that information. So I don't actually see how many people are reading each article. Um, I do sometimes hear back from people though. People email me and contact me about things I've published, which I almost always appreciate. Um, every now and then some of the emails I get are not friendly. Um, but, but the majority of them, even if they don't agree, are thoughtful. And so to the extent that people are are, are reading what I'm writing and it's helping them clarify or expand their thinking about a public issue, I'm happy with that. I, I think it would be arrogant and presumptuous to, to believe that Anything I've written has had a major impact, but probably the most widely read thing I've done was an op-ed in the New York Times a few years ago about social media and disinformation. Um, and I'd like to believe that that had some impact in how people think about that topic, but it's also been a few years and the recommendations I made have not been acted on. So I certainly haven't had that kind of measurable or quantifiable impact in the world. And, and you know, I, I think the reasonable aspiration for public engagement has to be something lower than I changed the world. Almost no one is going to do that. And if you aim for that, that's, that's, you're going to be disappointed. And also you're probably a bit arrogant if you assume you have that kind of power, but changing some people, some decent number of people, helping them think about a problem that confronts all of us collectively, that is an accomplishment. And I, I think that's the, what I'm aiming for, is that every column affects at least some people and that helps them clarify or add to what they're able to think about an issue that they're already aware of. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting to me because I work within a law school and I think amongst legal academics, there is much a much kind of stronger desire or drive to actually influence public policy and legal reform and to kind of have that almost measurable or quantifiable impact that, you know, I drafted this piece of model legislation, which ultimately got adopted as a text by the, the parliament, um, or I contributed to this policy brief and that shaped the regulations in this area. Um, and, I, and I think there's maybe kind of less of that, obviously, in, in other academic disciplines. And, and maybe law is fortunate in one sense that it has that kind of direct pipeline into public policy and legislative reform. Let me shift gears here for a minute and talk about teaching. Maybe you could just first talk about what kinds of subjects you teach. And mm -hmm. yes, yeah, the, the question that I really want to get at then is like, what do you think of the, uh, what do you think is the value of what you teach? It's similar to the question about what's the value of the, the public philosophy, but specifically within the, the context of teaching. I teach in a um, in a range of different topics in ethics and epistemology. And so, so some classes I approach as this is the sort of the core concepts you need to be a researcher in this area or a, or a student of this topic. What do you need to have um, as the foundation? And then other classes, especially for the AI class and the social media class, I'm looking at what can we do to connect philosophical ideas up to the cutting edge with technology and social and political issues? So in a way, those classes actually are, are very similar to what I'm doing in my publicly engaged philosophy. It's not the same medium, of course. I'm not writing little articles for my students, but it, it is the same kind of thing. I, I change the syllabus every single year for my AI class or my ethics of technology class. And um, 
um, I, I'm sure you do something similar when you think when you're teaching on these topics that that because the technology changes, you've got to stay up to date. So what I'm trying to help students do in those cases is I, I tell students this. I, I don't know what's going to happen with, say, cryptocurrency. I, I don't know what cryptocurrency will look like next year or five years or 10 years from now. So I'm not going to be able to tell them the definitive answer to how to think about the social implications of cryptocurrency. What I am trying to give them is a set of tools for recognizing patterns in how historical changes in technology have changed society and how we might expect those patterns to to change over time or to stay the same. What kind of researcher, what kind of resources, conceptual resources can we apply from past instances of technological change that will help us to anticipate and uh, I want to say soften the impact, the disruptive impact of future technological changes. So it's it's quite a range really, which which I enjoy. I enjoy having this this range of different things I can teach between the theoretical and then the the real really applied and, and really practical. Yeah, I mean, I, I once um, suggested to students that they should buy. Bitcoin, if they had like under $100, they should invest in a Bitcoin that was back about uh, 10 years ago. And if uh, if they had followed my advice, they would have been multimillionaires or something by now. Maybe not multimillionaires, but they would have um, made, a, made a lot of money from wow, it. Wow, Ironically, I didn't follow my own advice. So, um. Ah, well, well, you know, um, the uh, Hippocratic Oath, the original version, said that uh, medical students ought to support their teachers financially later on. So if there were some variant of that, perhaps, for those of us teaching about um, esoteric financial instruments, that would be great. Yeah, I mean, it's probably an indication that I didn't um, maybe fully believe what I said at the time, <laughs> that I didn't do it myself. I mean, in some sense, I, I did believe it in that uh, I my my view was always that like if if Bitcoin has any sort of like traction or sustainability, I mean, in the public imagination, it'll make more money because of just the way in which it's designed intrinsically, it's a value adding or um, increasing form of currency. It's, mm -hmm. So it's like it's a radically deflationary currency as opposed to the fiat currencies, which are inflationary. So you, you could be almost guaranteed to make money from it because of the way in which it was designed as long as people remained interested in it. But mm -hmm. I suppose that, that condition about whether people would remain interested in it, I wasn't entirely sure about that. Um, yeah. So I, I guess another question about teaching, and this is more to do with content as, of teaching. Um, yeah, I think some of my colleagues like within law schools, I would say, I don't want to speak out of turn about them but or name names, but like I think I know some people who are, have a very like strong agenda in what they teach in so far as you know they want to train human rights activists or something like that do you ever think about your teaching in those terms or is it kind of a more disinterested perspective that you take on you, you want to give students a set of skills and how they use them it's really up to them it, yeah i i think i do want to train to help to train a certain sort of citizen um but but i i think it's important to conceive of that in a relatively value neutral way one be careful here I, I i don't i don't think value neutrality is is sustainable in either research or teaching i think we, we have to commit to certain values of inquiry to even have academia um but but i i i do hold back more than some other academics do from advocating particular viewpoints um, on how society ultimately ought to be organized. I try as much as possible in teaching. I, I'm one of those people who enjoys it when students can't tell where my politics are. 
Um, now, if you read my writing, you're going to figure it out. But when it, I, a lot of times students don't, a lot of times students don't go beyond what's on the syllabus. Um, and so, and so in that case, they, they will often not even know where my, um, my own overall social and political views are. And that's kind of how I want it to be, especially with undergraduates, because this, this is not, it's not an accident. This is because my research is about how we handle disagreement, how we do deal with the fact that nor, the technology destabilizes our norms, that we have to figure out new ways of reshaping society, and that the fundamental feature of that reshaping is that we're going to disagree about fundamental values. And I can't honestly teach about those things if it comes across that I'm advocating a particular outcome or a particular resolution. And so for me to be able to engage with disagreement as a problem in and of itself, I need to teach in a way that is structured to promote healthy disagreement among genuinely deep and persistent opposing viewpoints. So I have to be relatively neutral. And I think that's the right way to do it. It doesn't mean that I believe that ultimately the point of academia is to be utterly neutral and not take any position on what's just or what's uh, what's what's responsive to evidence. But I do think that on the ground teaching needs to be, at least for my topics, needs to be as close as possible to neutrality. So th this may be just asking the same question in a different way, but um, see if anything different emerges from it. But do you have any issues or concerns about like viewpoint neutrality or, or not neutrality sorry viewpoint to diversity within modern academia i know this is a something that's obviously provoked a lot of outcry mm -hmm. in north america i don't know if it's true in canada but certainly let's say in, in the usa mm -hmm. there's you know, the what's it called um what's the the heterodox academy which is you know arguing mm -hmm. that there's a complete lack of viewpoint diversity in, mm -hmm. amongst academics and i guess there's a concern that this somehow filters out into maybe not so much teaching but certainly research related work um, that you're only getting a certain dominant viewpoint and you know can we count on liberal progressives to properly represent alternative points of view and mm -hmm. even if you're teaching a, a class on disagreement or something is that something that we should be concerned about or is that something that concerns you but issues around viewpoint diversity within the academy yeah absolutely and i i i find it very frustrating because two things have been run together and we separate them out. The first is about whether conservative, politically, politically and culturally conservative viewpoints are systematically discouraged within academia. And the second is about whether academia should take any position on overt prejudices about uh, ethnicity or gender or religion, etc. And those two things have been conflated in a way that I don't think is necessary. I don't think they should be conflated. So I, on the first point, I do think there is anti-conservative prejudice within academia. It varies by discipline it's, and it varies by country and place, but I, I think it's just true across the board. I think it's really hard to deny actually. Um, and, and I partly know this because I, I've had conservative students who there's no way to say this without sounding like I'm bragging and I don't mean to be bragging, but I've had conservative students who, who come to me because they say that their other professors won't even listen to their point of view. Um, and I, you know, I'm not all, these students are aware that I'm not ultimately agreeing with their overall viewpoint, but I'm at least willing to talk to them about it and listen to them. And, and as they put it, be respectful about it. Um, because, and again, this, this is not because I'm, I'm a super wonderful perfect person. That's not my point. My, my, my point is because I work on disagreement so much. And as I said, it's necessary for me to do that work that I stay as neutral as possible within the classroom. I think that opens up a space for people to feel more 
like it's more possible to express viewpoints that they feel like they can't express elsewhere. And I think that's really unhealthy for academia, it, epistemically unhealthy. It's bad for us epistemically if a certain range of viewpoints is is excluded right from the beginning. No, I don't mean this in the sense of like, oh, it's going to turn out those views are right and they're getting suppressed because I'm, I'm pretty doubtful that some of these viewpoints are going to be correct. What I do mean is that if we want to sharpen up the conceptual tools available to us and think more clearly, uh, I mean, this is kind of John Stuart Mill's point, although I think that hoping there's more nuance here. Um, we need to be constantly engaged with different variations. And, um, and, and so I, I anyway, the, the point here is just that this is, this is a long thing. I could probably talk about this for hours. I, I think there is a problem with the absence of conservative voices within academia. I think that is bad for academia. It is also disrespectful to individual students who have conservative points of view. And so I agree 100% or 95% with the kind of people who say that we need to work on reducing that kind of bias within academia. But then there's that second point, which often gets conflated, which says that, um, that well, if we need to allow more conservative viewpoints, then we also need to uh, promote or even tolerate overt bigotry within academia. And I just think that that's wrong. For one thing, I think it's insulting to conservatism. Conservatism is not necessarily tied to overt bigotry. Um, and, and for another, I think that we can recognize multiple values at once. So I actually think that the same reason why we should promote conservative, why we should, let me say this more clearly, the reason why we should try to avoid discouraging conservative viewpoints within academia is also the same reason why we need to have firm stances against academics who are bigoted themselves. So uh, academics who are expressing overtly racist or sexist views or homophobic views, we should not be promoting them within academia. We should not be hiring them. Um, I, I stand pretty firmly on that. I would not hire somebody who's part of whose research is overtly attacking members of marginalized groups because that person can't teach students from those groups. And that's a qualification for the job. You need to be able to teach all kinds of students. And if, so if you can't teach members of marginalized groups, you can't do the job and therefore we can't hire you. I'm pretty firm on that. But I think that's compatible. This is my frustration is that people run that together with this question about the role of conservatism. I think there are all kinds of conservative political and cultural views which are not bigoted. And um, I think it's a huge mistake to collapse together those two things. So I think for the same reasons that we should be encouraging greater participation in academia by conservatives, we should also be discouraging participation in academia by bigots. Yeah, I mean, I guess the challenge there is a question of maybe line drawing as to, you know, what kinds of views are acceptable and can be expressed and what kinds of views cannot be. And, you know, is it in political science, political theory, there's this notion of like the Overton window, which is like the mm -hmm. acceptable range of disagreement within political policy debates. And I guess there's something similar that might mm -hmm. be the case in academia, but this is the challenge that these things change over time, which I guess is implicit in, in your work as well about the destabilization and changing of norms. But thinking back to my own undergraduate experience and even now into some of my own teaching experience, right? I, in legal philosophy courses, we were taught about natural law theory and natural law objections to homosexuality and gay marriage, for, for example. And the views of John Finnis in particular were discussed who continued teaching undergraduate students in Oxford, I think, until recently, and that there was a um, kind of protest or issue raised about him and whether he could teach them. I, I actually don't know what the outcome of that was. I should probably have looked it up. But I, I used to teach some of those views very early on in the kind of early 2010s. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. But I think nowadays I probably just wouldn't teach them because I just think they've right. they've kind of moved beyond the range of what is acceptable in a discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I mean, how do we deal with that question of like what's within the Overton window of acceptable diversity in academia? Yeah, no, that's a very good point and something like you like you said in my research, I'm really attentive to. That's really important that uh, the boundaries of what can be discussed in a way that's consistent with basic respect for the dignity of everybody in the conversation, those boundaries change. They are not written in stone. They are partly built out of social conventions. And so if you're at a point of early progress on addressing bigotry, we just won't have the vocabulary yet to be able to talk about something in a way that's fully respectful. And so demanding that there is perfectly respectful discussion is just not, it's not something we can do early on in progress on a topic. Much later on, when there's much better conceptual resources, when we have clearer terminology, when we recognize that some ways of referring to people are 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 insulting or offensive or are or are intend or structured in such a way that they they um, they marginalize or de depower a person, reduce their standing in society. Once we can have those tools and can see that, that changes things. And then the expectations change on how you can participate in a conversation. And what that shows is that at even just a basic level of how we talk about things, how we conceptualize things, it's going to change over time. What is a what kind of thing you can do in the classroom that would or would not constitute disrespect to students? Because that that's the key point. This uh, this this is really my key frustration with a lot of this debate about free speech on campus. These are not the same thing. Free speech in research or, or do whatever you want in research is not the same thing as do whatever you want in the classroom. Research, I think, needs to be guided by a much more, you know, much closer to free speech absolutism. Research, I'm, I'm, I'm not a free speech absolutist, but I'm closer to it. I'm relatively close to it, actually, on research because I think it's epistemically productive to have all kinds of things in the air. That is not true about teaching. When you are teaching, you have duties to your students, duties of basic decency and respect. And that's going to mean attempts to introduce, you know, just for the fun of the debate, for the excitement of the debate, to ask whether or not people from certain ethnic groups or certain national origin or certain religions, whether they're not really members of our national community, I, that that's not appropriate in the classroom because there are members of those groups in the classroom and you have a duty to them as a teacher to, to respect their basic equality with everyone else in the room. So it might be fine if you want to do that with your friends at the and it might, maybe, if you're careful, even be fine in an academic journal. And it's just not okay in the classroom because of those particular duties you have towards your students. So I, I do think we have to separate out those two things. There are constitutive duties of decency and respect we owe to all students, including marginalized students. And those do limit to some extent the ways in which we can investigate questions in the classroom. Yeah, I mean, you kind of mentioned, though, that, you know, we shouldn't be hiring or racist or bigoted academics. That if, if if their views are overtly racist or bigoted, there would be an issue there. I mean, avoiding like a particular example of them, let me choose a, a different example that might kind of go beyond what our typical intuitions are on this. Mm-hmm. Um, David Benatar is an antinatalist, famously, mm-hmm. right? Doesn't believe that people should have children essentially and that you know being coming into existence isn't a good thing can he teach a pregnant student um is is there a kind of division between what he researches and what he says in the classroom or does the fact that he has advocated for this view in public um create problems or tensions within the classroom 
I think the key question there is to, is to pull the lens back and look at social political context. And so the first question there would be, is there a historically entrenched system that says that people who reproduce should be derogated or should not have access to certain forms of social capital? Um, and, and In a way there is, right? <laughs> historically. Yeah. It's complicated. It's complicated. In, in, there, there is there is an, in a economic sense that right being pregnant, having children reduces your your economic ability to engage because we don't have good structures for childcare and good ways. Or we're, we're developing better ways of allowing for having children, but they're not perfect yet. Um, there, that is a distinction, though, with the way in which. Um, Historically entrenched prejudices around other identity categories, especially persistent identity categories that that never end, such as your ethnicity or your um, or your sexual orientation or other identity categories that are persistent across a lifespan, those have a deeper historical and cultural skeleton than the example you're giving, and so I think it. it I mean, this is we had, there's lots of details here, and I can't make the argument in a few minutes during this conversation. But I do think these are differences in kind, because the the kind of argument that Benatar is making is it, it kind of cuts across uh, all people who have either been born, that is to say, all people, or people who might participate in the birthing of other humans, um, whether that's directly or that's through family support networks, etc. It, it's not targeted at a historically marginalized, persistent population in the way that racism, sexism, homophobia, etc. are. That doesn't mean that, that we should just, we, we can just say, oh, okay, there's no problem here. Um, there might be genuine questions to ask. I think a good, thoughtful teacher would ask, is what I'm saying, is, is, is if, if I take a certain sort of, um, uh, glib attitude toward the implications of Benatar's argument, what effect would that have on a pregnant student in my class? That's a good thing for a teacher to think about. I don't think, at least it doesn't appear to me, that that rises to the same level of, of wanting to keep overtly bigoted views out of the classroom. Yeah, and it occurs to me, you know, my example is even, the way in which I framed it is problematic, and you pointed this out, that it's not just pregnant students who would be affected by it. Like the people who are obviously with child, it's like anyone who's a father or involved in the, as you say, the birthing or caring for children would be affected by it. And so it wouldn't be, it could be potentially anyone in, in the classroom. So it seems like if you are maybe teaching that kind of topic, maybe there is some kind of, as you say, duty on you to reflect on how it would affect people in, in your class, um, given its content. Uh, i kind of conscious of time and I had a couple of other questions I want to ask. So maybe we might like just run through a couple of questions slightly more quickly, although I've been enjoying sure. the conversation so far. But I do just want to hit on a couple of other points about the process of teaching and the relationship with students. Um, mm -hmm. You know, obviously there's a lot of debate about improper relationships between academics and students historically, particularly, let's say, with sexual relationships or sexual harassment of students. I mean, setting that aside, because that's, I, well, maybe there is a debate to be had about some of those relationships, but like, that's beyond the Overton window of what's acceptable in teacher-student relationships. But then the question that arises for me, which is like, what is the sort of acceptable mode of relating to one's students? And in particular, I suppose, like, do we think about the relationship between teacher and student as something that's very kind of professional and distant and objective? Or can it be, have a more of a sense of friendship or... Uh, comradeship involved in it. What? How do you think about that? 
Yeah, it, it's hard. I mean, obviously, a lot depends on the details. I, I can just give a couple quick examples. I mean, in the last year, I've taught a graduate seminar with five students in it, which, you know, that, that I get to know each of them individually. And I, I recognize each of them individually and I know things about them. And then I also taught an introductory undergraduate class with 300 students in it. And I, I just don't know. I mean, this is especially complicated because I've been teaching on the Internet for the last year because of the pandemic. So with the 300 students over the Internet, I mean, there's just no possible way I could know anything about most of them. A few of them came to office hours and we talked one-on-one -on -one and I got to know a few of them and they were lovely. But, um, but I mean, out of those 300, I don't, I know essentially nothing about at least 250 of them. And so I can't have any kind of a direct relationship of any sort with a very large class like that. Um, so, so I think we have to have different approaches to that sort of large scale teaching versus small scale teaching. And I think the kind of questions you're asking are mostly applicable to small scale teaching with, with small, with classes of say 30 or less, where it is possible to know individual students. So I think it is nice as much as possible to develop that kind of quasi friend type relationship. That's especially true with students you'll teach more than once, graduate students or uh, majors within the discipline who will come back again, um, because it, it is valuable. It, it enhances teaching if you if the student can trust you to care about their interests in the way that a friend does. But I wouldn't want to call it a straight up friendship relationship because that is dangerous. There is a power element to teaching. Even if we don't like it, I, I don't like it, but it, it's just inevitable because we have power over students. We, we, we've been assigned a credentialing role in labor markets. Uh, what grades we give to students determine their future to a large extent. And students are, of course, incredibly aware of that and they can't help but be aware of that. And that means we have power over them, even if most of us are not the sort of person who enjoys having power over others. And I, I just think that we have to be conscious of that at all times, that that any sort of expectation we put on students, they are going to be compelled to go along with that expectation. I, I, I don't just mean this in the like really, really disgusting, overt ways of sexual exploitation. I mean, even just down to the level of affection. I think, I think sometimes academics, I, I want to be careful how I say this, but it's tempting sometimes to to encourage students to keep flattering you and saying how smart you are and how much you've touched their lives because of course it's lovely to hear those things uh, but but not all students mean it when they say that because they are under power under pressure of power to flatter us and to to make us feel rewarded for engaging with them and, and that's a rational response to the situation they're in and so i i try to remember at all times that um that it is a professional relationship. There is a power imbalance. And so I, I want as much as possible for students to trust me and trust that I have their best interests in mind. But also I have to keep in mind that I can't expect a symmetry from them. I shouldn't and can't expect that they demonstrate a similar concern for my well-being because if they do, if they do come under pressure to demonstrate that concern for my well-being, that's just not fair to them under those power constraints. So it can't be a symmetry form of caring about each other that friendship involves it's got to be to some extent it's closer to the therapist relationship or the physician relationship it is a, a quasi-professional relationship yeah no that's really helpful and actually you know i i do have some colleagues that ask students after a class how, what they thought of the class and almost kind of fishing for compliments in my view and i've i've always been uneasy about that practice and i think you've articulated well why I should be uneasy about it, perhaps. 
Um, what about grading and assessment? I mean, there's a lot actually written about the ethics and fairness of grading practices in, in modern universities. Is that something that you've ever reflected upon in your role in credentialing or assessing your students? Do you think there are issues that we should pay attention to in that process? Yeah, I, I this is one of those. It, it's so funny how um, how different this looks from different sides. I, for some reason, when I was a student, I thought professors enjoyed grading. I, I'm not sure why I thought this. I don't know. Maybe it was something I picked up in the media. But I, I didn't come from an academic family. When I, when I was a college student, I didn't really know anyone who'd ever graded anything. Right. I didn't know what that was. So when I was a student, I thought that that grading was something professors enjoy doing. They would you know, I don't know sit around in the uh, teacher's lounge and 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 talk to each other about this funny grade. They just I don't know. I'm not sure what I thought. But but like very quickly, once I started grading as a graduate student, I realized that grading is the worst part of being an academic. It's generally boring. It generally feels bad when you have to give bad grades to people. And also there is this undercurrent of what I am doing is ultimately not for any of my goals, nor for the students' goals. It's to serve this credentialing function in the labor market. And so th this this entire practice, which consumes a huge part of, of my work time at certain times of the year, um, it just doesn't accomplish anything for me or for the student. It's for someone else. It's for ultimately for their employer down the line. And, and that's really frustrating if you allow yourself to think about it explicitly. I don't think there's anything that can be done about it. I, I just, it's certainly not, we're not empowered at the individual educator level to do anything about it. And I'm not sure, I'm, I don't think I'm smart enough to see a way in which the credentialing function of academia could be reconstituted to avoid that. Um, and so it, it's frustrating. I don't like it. I wish it wasn't part of my job, but I, I don't see a way out of it. Yeah, I mean, I usually close up by asking a couple of questions about, you know, your relationship with your or your professional colleagues and also I suppose about employment within modern academia. Um, I suppose you mentioned earlier on that you are tenured. So that I guess that means you have a, a degree of security and comfort that a lot of your peers mightn't have. Do you have any thoughts on or worries about employment practices in, in the modern academy as to whether they are unjust or exploitative? I mean, this is something that I am mm -hmm. deeply concerned about. And like one reason why I've often been discouraged, for instance, from pursuing certain kinds of research funding, apart from maybe worries that I won't get it and uh, I'll you know make me feel bad about myself afterwards, is that I find that a lot of the goal of a lot of research funding is that you you get a big grant that allows you to buy out your teaching which then contributes to the casualization of labor within the modern academy. And that's something that I find problematic. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I I try to remember this because I, I'm, I'm at this point in my career in a, in a really privileged position within academia. I have tenure. I have a continuing job. I have teaching reductions as part of my research chair. Um, and, and that means that the teaching needs to be taken up elsewhere. There are lots and lots of folks at my university and elsewhere on short-term contractual um, teaching relationships. At my university, I think, might be better than some others because it's unionized, and so there are more protections, but it's still not, I mean, it's still just honestly the case. It's just that, that, that I have a cushier job than a lot of other teachers at my university do, and so I try to be aware of that. The hard part is what to do about it. I, I do think there's a tension here with the with, let me put it this way, I think some of the work that I and other researchers and especially public engaged people do is incredibly hard to do without the cushiness of the job. I, I can't 
be flexible and keep switching across different topics and write different things about I'll write these columns every other week about different um, topics without the, the the flexibility that my job gives me. Um, if I were teaching at the same teaching load as many other people do, I just couldn't do it. It wouldn't be possible. There aren't enough hours in the week. And so if we want academia to be socially responsive at the level of explaining and directing research to the interested public, there needs to be some room for people to have that flexibility. Um, but it's certainly the case that that's not an evenly distributed good at this point. Um, and so I, 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 I guess what I'm trying to express is it's absolutely true that in the last few decades, there's been an increasing shift to, towards contingent, precarious, and exploited labor in academia. That is absolutely true. And we all have a responsibility to resist that. At the same time, I also know that there are competing goods that are hard to that are hard to serve without some measure of inequality in working conditions. Um, and what that means is we've we've got the balance wrong right now. We've absolutely got the balance wrong. We we are too much towards a, a, an exploitive contingent contingentized labor force within academia, and we need to push back. But I but I do. I am trying to think about what it means ultimately. What's the regulative ideal here? What is the balance we want to get to where there is some room for some folks to do less teaching precisely so that there's time in the day to do more widely engaged kinds of, I mean, one way to think about it is, is some of the public engaging work I'm doing is, is a form of teaching directed at people who are not enrolled as students in my university. And if my teaching load within the university increases, then my ability to do extramural teaching decreases. And so that that is the really hard part is thinking ultimately how to balance those different pedagogical intramural extramural responsibilities within the university and how to fairly distribute the workload among the people who work within a department. Yeah, it's, it's a, that's a larger conversation. I do think, you know, better pay and conditions is an obvious solution to some of that problems because you, you can feel less bad about the uh, mm -hmm. What you mentioned earlier on, I guess, which is the, the cognitive division of labor, like who's doing what within the within the academic department. Mm -hmm. I, I feel more comfortable with somebody with a high teaching load if they get compensated fairly for that. I guess my yeah. concern is that a lot of the you know, casual em employment is very clearly not properly compensated for that. And by any standard, the amount of work that has to be put into like teaching and grading a course versus yes. the compensation for it like at an adjunct level or something like that is is clearly you know um, disproportionate and not fair and we do it because mm -hmm. you know t it's graduate students let's say who want to get teaching experience and they think of this as mm -hmm. you know something that'll get them on the stepping stone to the tenured position when oftentimes actually they end up in a kind of cycle of adjunct positions that they can't break out of yeah, no, that's absolutely true. I absolutely agree. And and I mean, it, the hard part is that we that obviously no individual academic can do anything about that on their own. That's a collective problem. And the decision making is generally made above the departmental level. That kind of structural decision making is generally made by administrators, some of whom haven't been in the classroom anytime recently. I, I, I don't want to sound like I'm attacking all administrators. Lots of administrators are great and thoughtful, but some administrators who make these decisions uh, approach it in a corporate way. And that and it's very hard to know how to relate that that way of seeing things, which, which for all I know is inevitable. Maybe once you get to a certain point of administration, the financial and administrative burdens on you are such you can't help but think about it that way. I don't know. I've never been there. But it does make it really hard for us on the ground in departments to, to 
think about how to properly exert the pressure against this kind of increasingly exploitive labor condition. Yeah, I think that's maybe a good place to end the conversation. So yeah, I'd just like to thank you for joining me once again. Sure. Thank you very much. Really interesting questions and a really good discussion.